Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Oliver Berkman. He's a journalist and an author, and we are talking about how to properly manage your time. Time is something we all wish we had more of, and tons of productivity gurus have proposed strategies to stop it from slipping through our fingers. After years of investigating and reporting on cutting-edge productivity for The Guardian, Oliver has arrived at a slightly different worldview of time and how we should manage it. Today, expect to learn why becoming more efficient often just leads to you getting more useless work done, the fundamental problems which all time management strategies fail to address, how deciding what you're going to fail at is a superpower, the danger of seeing your leisure time as an arena for self-improvement, and much more. As you might be able to hear, I am still on the recovery road back from laryngitis, which caused me to completely lose the ability to make sounds out of my face. Uh, Hopefully, I've got an episode this Thursday, actually, that I recorded during the midst of it because I I had to get it done. Uh, So you can look forward to, to that sultry, seductive affair. But that being said, I'm glad that I got it when I did because over the next few months, I've got episodes coming up with Aubrey Marcus, Ryan Holiday, Robert Green, Joe Navarro, Dan Jones, General Stanley McChrystal, John McWhorter, and Andrew Huberman. Lots and lots to look forward to. If you want to know when these episodes go live, you need to be subscribed. It's the only way that you can ensure that you will never miss an episode. So just head to your podcast app and press subscribe. It is the best way to support this show, and it makes me very happy. So I thank you. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They are the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. This episode is brought to you by 
AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days, and if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for inviting me. What's the unique challenge with time? Do we actually have time? It's so weird. I mean, time is time is fundamentally, I think, like unlike any other thing uh, in a million different ways, and probably also a million different ways related to physics that I hope you're not going to ask me about. But um, yeah, I mean, one of the things you're... I think getting out there is like, yes, the very notion that we even have it to be managing or to be making good use of or to be making poor use of the very idea that it's even in our possession in the first place seems very flawed when you stop to think about it, because you don't ever really have uh, you, you don't have you don't possess next week or the rest of today. You, you expect it, um, but you don't um, but you don't possess it in a way that you can sort of set it aside for later. Um, we just get one moment uh uh, one moment after each moment, and it's the same for everybody. Yeah. What do most people get wrong about time management then? I think the sort of core uh, mistake that I've certainly spent, you know, many years of my life making, and maybe still make to some extent, and that I'm trying to address, is it's this idea that we can ever get into a position of mastery and full control over time right so so we feel like our, the, the what you have to do in this situation of being overwhelmed by activities obligations tasks ambitions is, is to sort of become capable of uh meeting all of these uh, you know being sort of optimal optimally productive and capable of, of, of handling anything that's thrown at you and also to feel kind of secure with respect to the, the, the future, to know that your plans are going to come into fruition. And, and I think that that desire to be in control of time uh, sort of leads us massively astray because it's not possible. And so in trying to do this impossible thing, we end up actually spending time in really suboptimal ways because we're really chasing that feeling of like being in the driver's seat. Is modern uh, and, and like wanting to win the battle, right? And you can't win the battle of time. In the end, time is going to win that, that battle. Yes, it's a bit of a, was it King Canut <laughs> or whatever it was that tried to stop the tide from coming in? It's precisely right. the same as him. So is time management anxiety a modern phenomenon? 
I think the way we experience it today is absolutely a modern phenomenon. I mean, you can look at this in different timescales, right? On the one hand, if you're going back to the medieval period, I don't think the average sort of English peasant would have had any concept of time as a as a separate thing, as a as a as a thing that was there to be used or wasted or well used. It's it was just sort of like there was this kind of unalienated um way of being in time. It was just the medium in which life unfolded. So to have any kind of anxiety about time, you first of all have to, you know, invent clocks and disidentify from time and see it as this thing that is constantly sort of like a yardstick that's constantly you're you're running alongside or something like that. And then I think there's a much more recent thing, which is to do with the sort of pace of acceleration and economic competition and all sorts of things just in the last few decades, where that effort to use time in the way we think we need to becomes sort of unignorably obviously impossible, right? I think there's probably a quite a long period after the Industrial Revolution when people are being a bit stressed by time, but there's, it feels doable. Like it feels like you could render your life or your factory, uh, you know, as efficient as it needed to be to stay on top of everything. And I think just much more recently, there's a sense that that sort of, that possibility is breaking down. You see what I mean? Is it not just, that we're busier than people in the olden era were, that we've got more things to do. I don't think it is just that we definitely feel busier than people did a few decades ago. Um, and I think that um, there's actually a fairly good, there's fairly good evidence that we're not busier by, in a sort of objective sense, in, in the sense of having more, um, having less leisure time. We actually have more leisure time than, than a few decades ago. It just doesn't feel very relaxing and then yeah if you're talking about this time scale that goes back to pre-industrial times or, or you're including kind of some indigenous cultures perhaps even today um then it's like well what does busy even mean right i mean uh their time is full but this but this situation of feeling like you have to do more than you can do which is totally absurd right this is a logical logical contradiction you can't have to do more than you can do um i don't think that arises for people in those cultures or at those points in in history so that then it's sort of like the question becomes meaningless the further back you look i suppose that's the conflict right the conflict is between what we feel we should be getting done and the amount of time in which we have to get it done right and that's yeah. the squeeze yeah, that's the that's the real trap when it comes to what we call busyness. You know, I write in the book like busyness per se. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Richard Scarry children's books, which uh, which um, I am because I've uh, read many of them to my four year old. But you, that they're set in a place called Busy Town, and all the animals in them are take like human jobs. So like the firefighters are pigs, and the grocers are raccoons, and all this stuff. And like the whole deal is they're busy. But that really brings home that busy can mean something perfectly benign, which is just that you have a lot of things to do and the day is sufficient to contain them. There's no there's no um, tension there. That's just like being busy. That's a lovely way to live. Um, what we have is overwhelm, right? What we have is the sense that we need to be doing more than we are going to have the chance to do. And it's a really weird 
predicament because you know there's this idea in philosophy that uh ought implies can that you can't um you can't meaningfully talk about having some duty or obligation uh if it's if it's not possible to fulfill it um it's not my obligation it can't be my moral obligation to save you from a burning building if the burning building is 2000 miles away and there's no possibility of getting there in time in the same way like it can't be my obligation to get through more activities than it is possible for a human to get through in the course of a day. And yet that mismatch, that weight of that pressure, that sense that, you know, it is sort of the stakes are high and that we have to do it and that we can't do it is a sort of total recipe for uh, stress. Yeah. But the belief is that if I just became more focused, more efficient, if I upregulated my productivity system or downregulated my sleep, they actually could fit yeah. more in. Right. And of course you can, right? This, this is not a tirade against the very idea of efficiency. If it's taking you two hours to like brew your coffee and uh, get washed and dressed in the morning, like there my are housemates. Efficiency my housemate was taking two hours to brew, probably about, I shit you not, probably about 30 minutes to make a coffee during lockdown because he's a, a physio for a professional sports team who weren't playing. And he was just every day there was fresh sourdough bread and like two or three pots of artisan created coffee every day. I've got nothing. It's either this or Xbox. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if the value if the value you're pursuing is uh, is really good coffee, then maybe it should take you that long. But I mean, there's no harm in making efficiency savings in life. That can be very that can be very useful. But I think the situation that we're in is we're in a world of effectively infinite inputs. Um no limit to the number of emails you could receive or demands that can be made of you or of, you know, places you want to visit on your bucket list and business ventures you want to launch. It's not all negative, but it is all kind of limitless. And we're limited. Time is finite in a life, in a day. So, yeah, the the struggle to optimize to the point where a finite uh, person can do an infinite amount is um, is is doomed to failure. That's, that's not how math works, right? But yeah. uh, but it's um, but it also keeps alive this feeling that maybe next week, maybe with the right system, maybe with just a bit more self discipline, you can sort of burst through uh, to that to that serene situation. Having spent a lot of time talking to people like James Clear and Ali Abdal, and you know these sort of real modern productivity wizards, it there the, there always is in the back of my mind a sense of never being done never being done with advancing the productivity system that mm -hmm. there's an alan watts quote that says you can become so preoccupied with trying to improve your life that you altogether forget to live it and <laughs> right, right you can roll that out to talk about the systems themselves so you can sort of become very meta about this you can spend so much time working on your productivity system to enhance your ability to get more done that you don't even get around to getting stuff done let alone, yeah, to, yeah. you know, so there's, there are, and I've, I've totally been there as well. I mean, like I, I have, you know, yeah, absolutely. Yes. The overheads start to sort of take away from any possibility of doing anything else. Yeah. And I think learning when, when you have optimized sufficiently deeply, when you've downregulated the sleep and upregulated the, the system to a level where you're happy with it. And this is something that, so many young guys that kind of follow a similar track to what I did, you know, 20 year old guys who start running a business and, and really enjoy it and, and want to do more. And they attach their sense of success and self-worth to how the business is performing. 
it, you can get into a spiral of working an awful lot, but you need to set yourself an upper bound because you will just erode away every single second of your life if you're not careful. You can just right. continue to chip away and chip away and chip away at everything. And then you think, well, what, what was the productivity in service of? Like, what's right. the end goal of what I'm trying to achieve here? Presumably, it's a life that's fulfilled and satisfied and happy and comfortable with sufficient resources, but not so many that I can't spend them. Like, over-earning yeah. seems just as stupid as under-earning. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's been some amazing work. Um, I'm thinking right now of a book by uh, Daniel Markovitz about how, um, you know, your reward for being a winner in the society that we live in now, for, like, getting to the great best universities and getting the best jobs is this sort of pressure to work with crushing intensity, as he puts it, that is kind of, in that respect, not much, not particularly preferable to um, working with crushing intensity just to keep a roof over your head. I mean, there are there are other upsides for sure, but it's like the it's not like like it, the whole point of being wealthy at any point in history until fairly recently was like so you didn't have to work, right? So you could like hunt stag and have banquets or whatever. Um, and now the reward for climbing up that ladder in this sort of efficiency dominated situation is is just even more that you that you have to do. I, I think, you know, I guess this is an observation that goes back to like Max Weber and probably before, but what happens is that efficiency becomes kind of self self justifying, right? So it become it becomes the end to which a system is uh tailored rather than Good Heart's law kicks oh, in very hard, yes. Right. Uh, rather than a way, yes, exactly. Rather than a way of, um, of maximizing the, the degree to which you're achieving some, some other goal, some other value. And especially, you know, the, 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 in some ways, the worst part of this is that it doesn't actually, it, it sort of attracts more input, right? So this is just, this is Parkinson's law. This is all sorts of other observations from all sorts of, uh, different domains, but like, if all you do is make a system more efficient uh, in the service of nothing other than making it more efficient, then all else being equal, it will attract more and more inputs until it's overwhelmed again, like when they put an extra lane on the M25 or whatever and more cars come. And it will fill with sort of lower quality stuff. So your reward for becoming brilliantly efficient is to be busier than before, like on on less meaningful things, if that's uh, if that's what you're pursuing in the absence of anything else. Yeah. What should our goal with time be then? Wow. I mean, I've got all sorts of like, I can talk about techniques till the cows come home, but I think that the, I think that the really important thing is it is a kind of inner gesture. It's a sort of, um, it, it, it's a, it's a kind of surrender to, to reality and to the limited situation that we're, that we're in. Um, an understanding that uh, you can't control or dominate or master time, that we're just in time. We, I think, you know, arguably we sort of are a stretch of time. That's how totally we're just sort of trapped in this situation. And I think we don't like how that feels. So a lot of what we engage in as productivity or self-improvement is actually an attempt to avoid these uncomfortable emotions. But if you can sort of let them percolate through you a bit. The actual job of using time well then becomes kind of easy because that's just a question of spending 
some of your whatever amount of discretionary time you have on things that you know are the most important things for you to be doing. And I don't like in the book, I don't try to give a laundry list of like, these are the things you ought to be spending a meaningful life on. I think most people, when they get quiet and introspect a bit, don't have a lot of problem answering that, that question. The problem is they expect it to feel comfortable to be pursuing those things. And it probably isn't going to because it's going to bring you into contact with reality and limitation in various ways that that spending all day scrolling through Twitter does not. What's the um, role with limitation and finitude here? What's the role of limitation and finitude? Well, it's just completely defining, right? I mean, it's just, it, 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 it is, it, it, it it's how things actually are. Uh, the fact that, you know, every choice you make to do something is a choice to not do a million other things with that period of time. The fact that you can't exert very much control or even influence over the future a little bit, but you certainly can't know that things are going to go the way you need them to. And so the problem in a way is trying to, is trying to cure this situation. It's not the situation. It's the fact that we spend so much of our time and so much, especially much of our energy in self-improvement and, and productivity, trying to pretend that this is not the way things are and that we are in more control than, than we really are. So, I mean, the, um, there's a quote which I love and keep coming back to from Charlotte Jocko Beck, the American Zen Buddhist, which is, what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured which I think is like totally brilliant because it's like, it's not that there's not going to be difficulties. It's not that there aren't disappointments and losses involved in, in, uh, you know, being alive and trying to make something of your life. It's this idea that we ought to be able to have it not be that way. And we're going to be stressed and anxious and indignant all the way until we finally reach that that situation which we then never do <laughs> sam harris had this quote it doesn't sound very upbeat no, no but i i think it's correct sadly we're finite creatures surrounded by infinite complexity right there and is capable of infinite imagination as well I think correct yeah so not only is there are there an infinite number of options of what we could do with our time but we can actually envision them and Ooh. mistakenly we can believe that we could perhaps maybe do them if we were able yeah. to to get the right productivity system and t the, the task management, and I've seen that guy on the internet that can type at 260 words a minute, I bet he can get all of his work done. I bet he's able to run three businesses and continue the house moving forward. But yeah, Sam Harris has this this quote where he says, um, you're never going to not have problems. Right. What? Did you just think one day that you were going to wake <laughs> up and you would have completed problems? Like, like yeah. leveling up in a video game, and entering into a map where there's no features. No, the, the problems are going to be there. They are a feature, not a bug of life. Yeah, yeah, right. And they're just generated by, they're just generated by the situation that we're in, right? I mean, what's the definition of a problem? It's that in the most basic sense, I suppose, it's that, um, you know, that, that something is not, the way you wish it to be and it's there for you to try to turn it into something you do wish it to be well that's always going to be true and solving one problem is going to cause another so um yeah i think it's i think that's a lot of the tenor of a lot of the popular and sort of definitely sort of more aimed at men male readers self-help of the last few years i'm thinking of the stuff sam writes but obviously also jordan peterson is the obvious 
example in this mix. And really, I think a lot of it all goes back down to that book, uh, The Road Less Traveled, which is years old and a lot and a lot. It's not so um, it's not so heavy on the sort of masculinity stuff, but it basically comes to the same message. And the beginning paragraph is something like uh, life is difficult. Um, this is one of those problems that this is one of the great problems, which means that once it's accepted, it's no longer a problem or something like that. And it's like, that's the point. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't have said it better even than the garbled version that I just gave you. <laughs> What's the efficiency trap then? Is that just becoming more eff- efficient and more productive, productive in an effort to then fill up the remaining time with more stuff to be done as opposed to using that time to spend on things that are leisure? Yeah, I mean, I just use that phrase. There's sort of two aspects to this. One is, the, as we've discussed, right, that, that um, becoming more efficient in the absence of any other value will just increase your workload and your busyness and uh, and work will rush in to fill the, the extra capacity you're creating through various different means, you know, and the obvious one is email, right? I mean, if you're really, really good at responding to email, you're going to get more email because you're going to get replies and then you have to reply to those and blah, blah, blah. There's also this qualitative aspect, which I sometimes sometimes call the importance trap. I think I think I need to be more rigorous in the proprietary names I'm, I'm giving my concepts. Um, it's holding me back. Um, but which is, this sort of stems from this observation in my own life, but I've, <clears throat> many, many people have, have sort of resonated with it since that like, as you get really good at getting things done, what tends to happen is that you get you realize that you're getting really good at getting the unimportant things done. And actually, the important things are being pushed back over the horizon just as much as ever. And I think what's going on there is just, you know, the more you convince yourself that you can do everything, the less filtering you apply when something comes onto your radar um, the more likely you are to say yes to anything, either internally, if it's a, a ambition of your own or to a request from someone else, because you never go through that process of like, well, okay, what am I going to neglect in favor of this thing? And so if you think about it, that just like over time, that just means that your list is going to fill with more and more things that haven't met a quality threshold. And you will, in the words of Jim Benson, a workplace consultant who I quote in the book, become a, a limitless reservoir for other people's expectations. Um, it's just like you'll just end up doing what other people would like someone else to be handling on their behalf. That's an interesting way to look at productivity, that it actually reduces how skeptical or how many scruples you have around the things that you choose to do. If you can get twice as much work done in a given period of time, you can get twice as much of the important stuff done or be half as judgmental when it comes to choosing what you want to get done. Right. And I think the thing to remember there is that like most, possibly this is a human universal, but most people who who are like sort of have a bit of dynamism and want to do a few things with their lives, that there's going to be, no matter how uh, productive you get, there's always going to be more genuinely meaningful and important things than the capacity will allow so you're probably not going to have the bandwidth to start messing with the things that you don't particularly care about and there's a uh, there's a lovely observation from elizabeth gilbert the, the novelist and writer on productivity and author of eat pray love uh 
underrated book in some quarters. I think it's actually really good. Um, that, uh, you know, we, we, we hear all these bromides about the importance of saying no. And you secretly think that what that means is you have to like start being willing to say no to all the crap that people are asking you to do that, that you don't really want to do. But actually, it's way more challenging than that. It's saying no to things that you really do want to do uh, and that really do matter and that it would have been really good to spend some time on. It's not that you just get to choose. This is like a little backdoor to continuing this kind of problematic way of behaving. Is like I'm going to get so productive so that everything that matters gets done and I'm going to accept that I'm not going to get all the things that don't matter done. But it's no, it's, it's way harder than that. It's not doing everything that does matter. So if time management's ultimately doomed to fail, what's novel about what you're proposing here? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that it's novel if you're going to go all the way back through the history of philosophy. Um, I think, you know, Seneca got there first and Heidegger in a, in a sort of slightly more Nazi way. I don't really need to have... Are you saying that Heidegger managed to out-Nazi you in this book? I was, I was adamant that this was some sort of treatise towards Hitler. <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a word that gets thrown around a lot uh, these days, uh, but, but Heidegger was as, as absolutely canonically a Nazi as it's possible to Time be. Time Nazi. Very, <laughs> no, no, no just a Nazi. <laughs> and it's very difficult because like, actually, I think, you know, being in time to the extent that I've grappled with it and tried to understand it really gets at something very wise about the nature of time. But then you have to issue all these caveats because he was literally a, a party member. Um, what's in, unique about my, what's, what's, what's new about what I'm saying? <laughs> I think it is, what I'm trying to convey is this notion of a kind of surrender that isn't disempowering. So it's this idea of like, it's, it's a kind of acceptance, acceptance of reality that is kind of bracing and motivating and focusing. I guess this word acceptance has been, it has a lot of weird connotations. Either it feels like resignation or it feels like um, uh, sort of just overly new age. You know, you feel like books about acceptance are going to have a uh, little tableau of flowers on the cover or a pebble or something. But <laughs> um, but it, there's something quite muscular about it. There's something quite, I mean, Cal Newport, um, who I'm sure you'll be, you and your listeners will be familiar with, but he talks about uh, facing the productivity dragon, which is his phrase for like not pretending that there aren't more things demanding your attention than there are and facing up to it and making tough decisions if you have to about what you can actually do. And there's some, I like that spirit. I like that sort of, um, I like the idea that it's kind of scary on a level on some way to, um, to see how things actually are with respect to time. But the payoff for doing it is that um, you get to sort of, stop using up all your time and attention and energy trying to do something impossible and focus it on doing a few things that that are possible so if time is limited that means that we need to say no to certain things how can people think more clearly about these sort of trade-offs i mean there are lots of ways of implementing this at different levels sort of per domain of life or per task. I mean, I think one very simple, one of the productivity approaches that really does, that is consonant with all of this 
is um, is anything that's that's sort of based around the idea of doing one thing at a time. So if you can limit your work in progress, there are sort of the Kanban methodology is one way of doing this. If you can sort of pick one big goal in each domain of your life and sort of attempt to complete that one before moving on to the others, it's anything that has this spirit of like, okay, there's lots of things I could be doing, but instead of giving in to the the good feeling of like having a finger in every pie, taking care of business, touching every project in the course of a day, and actually not making progress on any of them, um, I'm going to sort of tolerate that uncertainty that that comes sorry that discomfort that knows from that comes from knowing that important things are being neglected in order to sort of focus on on one thing and i think that can work at the level of kind of big projects and day-to-day day-to-day tasks um that's one i can i can talk endlessly about ways to sort of implement this basic single basic uh, perspective shift I like the idea of deciding what we're going to fail at. Can you dig into that? Yeah, this is an idea I got originally from an author called John Acuff, and he just makes this very kind of obvious once it's been pointed out to you point that um, if this finite situation means that we're going to fail to um, excel to 100% in every single domain that we can possibly think of, which it does, um, then, then it makes a lot of sense to sort of select in advance uh for a given time period you know something that you're some area of life that you're going to uh accept your non-excelling in so you know you might you might decide that i mean one thing is you know i think especially for people young people at certain stages of their careers you know really going all in to work for on work for a while can be a perfectly legitimate decision and maybe not attempting to have an incredibly rich sort of life outside work with all manner of hobbies and relaxation and uh etc etc or it could be something as simple as saying like you know i'm i'm trying to do well in my work and raise a small child i'm not going to be the person who has a really tidy house or six-pack abs uh, Right, right, right. Or as impressive a cook. This is the thing for me. It's just like once I accept that, like as long as I'm when it, I'm feeding myself and my family basically healthily, it's like I, I think I have to put on hold for several more years from now the moment when I can really wow people with the with the dishes that I can uh, that I can whip up. And yeah, fitness, right? I don't want to tell tell anyone they should just give up on that. But there's obviously different kinds of goals you can have between like maintenance and reducing your risk of heart disease through to uh you know winning marathons and 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 being sort of incredibly impressively muscular so the point being that you're going to experience certain kinds of uh failure in different domains and that if you do this in advance you can really focus your efforts you can make no effort or relatively speaking no effort in some other area if you don't do that you're going to sort of spread yourself thinly not get far enough in each one and be constantly disappointed that you didn't reach uh 100% in on any given um in any given domain yeah there's two things going on there one of them is the uh internal relinquishing of a sense that I should be doing better by accepting in advance look this is the hill that I'm going to work on for the next mm -hmm. 6 months or whatever or these are the mm -hmm. hills and I'm going to concede mm -hmm. that these ones aren't. So I don't have this 
potentiality gap between where I think I could be and where I am because I've already conceded, right? I've I've right. wrangled the chaos of the next few months into order by having a plan and by laying it out. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, which is equally important, is that you're going to be more competitive within the domains that you narrowly choose to try and excel in because you are not going to win a marathon by being great at work. And you're not going to be getting a promotion at work by being good at a marathon. However, if you allow yourself to progress tightly within one domain for a period of time, you can then coast in that. Let's say that you do spend a good amount of time on a training plan and you decide, right, I'm going to diet down and I'm going to get myself to a good level of body fat and I'm going to get some, some muscle and build my lifts up. That strength will carry itself on far more Mm -hmm. effectively than if you tried to do you can get done in six months of focused work what would take three years of disparately focused work and the same thing goes for think about a youtube thing the the Pareto distribution is a hell of a drug right like it's everywhere and you Mm -hmm. think if you want to be in the top five percent of anything you're going to get disproportionate returns to somebody that's in the top 10 percent or the top 20 percent because it it gets super competitive at the top but the returns are also sort of uh, they become is it logarithmic? Is that the one I mean? No, exponential. The returns become exponential towards the top. So you get far more returns than the tiny, tiny increases that you need to put in. And another thing to consider, right. and this is something I've been saying for so long to myself, shouting it in my own ears, but everyone else is too, is like, look, the vast majority of people cannot let go of the tether of doing everything at once. This means mm-hmm. that consistency and a narrow focus is a competitive advantage. One of the reasons that you can really excel in your industry is because other people aren't prepared to commit to that industry because they have this same compulsion that you do as well. They have Mm -hmm. social engagements and a family and they want to spend money on a car but also a house and they want to learn to be a good cook but they want to have six-pack abs and they want to pick whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Everybody else has this compulsion too. So by deciding to create some sort of bottleneck or forcing function or limiting choice or whatever it might be, you are selecting yourself out of that pool of other people you are giving yourself a competitive advantage and existentially it's going to be less painful because you're going right okay i'm not going to be super fit i you know go to the gym a couple of times a week to just maintain for the next year or six months or whatever but that doesn't matter because i chose i chose this in advance yeah absolutely i think it's incredibly powerful and i yeah i appreciate the way you unpack that into the two uh the, the two different elements that are that are going on here and I think, yeah, I think it's the reason that we don't want to do that deep, deep, deep down is this notion that if we are working on everything, we're approaching gradually, never actually reaching this state of controls because it takes trust, right? It takes um, to, to put one thing on hold for a while and believe that you're going to get around to it in a, in a subsequent six month period or something. It takes a kind of self-trust that you need to know that that when that time comes, you'll, you can switch gears and, and, and do that. Um, and if you come at it from a sort of control freaky, untrusting, unself-trusting position, that's when you're like, well, I better take care of it all right now. And I think quite a lot of the sort of the stuff around like morning and daily routines has been quite damaging for this because it's sort of, it's encouraging this notion that you've got to sort of find time in an hour and a half in the morning for 12 different, uh, for 12 different practices, um, it, it really sort of like, I don't know, I think I've really benefited from 
meditating. But am I finding time for it at the moment? I got to be honest and say no. I'm doing some other things with uh, with the time I would be using for that. And like, I think that's okay. I think that's and I think that applies to a million different uh, domains. Yeah. And if you're going to have, I know I keep mentioning this, but if you're going to have small children, they're they're going to be the they're going to be the priority for a good while, whether you like it or not. I think another reason that people like having their fingers in multiple fires, fingers in multiple pies, toes in multiple fires, <laughs> is that it creates an N of one that gives them culpable deniability about why they might not be performing particularly well within a particular industry. Oh, yeah. So if you are the yeah. only skateboarding, cricketing, bodybuilding salesperson of insurance in the UK that also moonlights as a chef, then <laughs> right. being a bit shit at all of them almost gets excused <laughs> because it's like, yeah, but no one else is doing this. No one else gets what I'm doing. So there is a little bit of a get-out-of-jail-free right. card there. No, I think that's totally right. And I think that um, it reminds me of, you know, I think especially in the world of sort of content creation and the attention economy more generally, we get confused, don't we, about what, what, what constitutes the, the, the useful and meaningful form of extraordinary of being extraordinary and, and people sort of there's a, people are incentivized to like, yeah, to do things that are out of the ordinary or weird combinations. And, and, um, uh, there's all sorts of stuff I've read in the past about how the way to find a niche in, in writing or whatever it might be is to just these seemingly very bizarre sort of combinations of weird stuff and yeah, have your finger in multiple pies. That relates to something else that I write about, which is that actually like there's 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 real power in the willingness to invest the time in sticking to one path and and sort of go through that period of of this is the Helsinki bus station theory. I can talk about it if you want. But yeah, yeah, this that? idea of like going through the process of unoriginality to get to the originality on the other side. That's this idea that um, goes back to this uh, Finnish American. Finnish American photographer called Arno Minkinen, where he tells this whole story about um, how uh, in Helsinki, all the all the buses at the central bus station in Helsinki start from the same place. And then uh, all the routes, lots of the routes sort of overlap with each other through the center of the city. Lots of the routes are the same. And it's only when they get to the outskirts that they start to like branch off into different places. And I think I probably won't try and go through the whole story here, but the the basic idea is, you in lots of creative work especially you have to stick with um you have to stick with paths that feel like they're what everyone else is doing feel like you're just a, an apprentice feel like they're not what you're not sort of making a name for yourself in order to get to the place at the end of that process that is unique and and defines you as a sort of unique voice so it's another example of you know of this extraordinary power that being able to cultivate patience can can give you i think in the especially in the world we live in now even if somebody accepts everything that we've said as gospel to-do list anxiety is still going to arise how can someone who's addicted to the sense of feeling productive learn to let go of that tether i think you know two approaches that may well <clears throat> be familiar to some of your listeners but that really work with this process the first is anything any form of 
organizing your day that draws on the basic principles of time boxing, right? Anything that takes, anything that puts time first. So, so uh, you you d- decide to work on a certain project or or to do or to just do work per se for a certain number of hours, and then you stop, and then you make your choices about what to focus on based on that limitation. You don't say I'm going to get through all of this, and if it takes me till midnight that's fine you say i'm going to stop at whatever time i'm going to work for however long and just like taking those time going sort of schedule first in that way can be very helpful i think for for some people because it's sort of it, it, it's uncomfortable but it but it delineates where the discomfort is and then the big challenge is you have to get up when the timer goes off or when the moment comes you have to like pull yourself away and not expect to feel great about pulling yourself away and then just another implementation of this that I mentioned is this idea of keeping two to-do lists, right? So you have your unlimited open to-do list that probably has like 3,000, you know, 200 things on it that you that you need to do. And then another that is limited to, say, five slots. And you move tasks from the long list to the short list. But the rule is that you can't add more than five. So you can't add a new one until a slot has been freed up by completing it. That's just a one very simple example of a self-chosen bottleneck that, um, again, you know, it's not that you're doing less. It's that you always were making those choices, but now they are conscious. And so, you know, then you have to decide if I can only focus on five things right now, they better be five that are, that are worth my, my time. Have you heard of Cold Turkey, the app? Yes, but I don't know what it does. So it is a good way to ensure that you finish work when you say you do. And cold turkey in it has a function called frozen turkey. And frozen turkey will (laughs) lock you out of your own computer at a preset time. (laughs) And there is nothing that you can do about it. So I have a couple of of buddies who've got it set. Um, I I actually think it was part of the uh, uh, part of a very argumentative discussion with their partners around um you you work too late okay well i can do this Mm -hmm. thing that causes me to be locked out of the laptop uh but they've told me that the degree of furiousness and anxiety during the three minutes leading up to when that happens (laughs) is a (laughs) is a sight to behold because they just realize they're like shit 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 as fast as possible (laughs) trying to get everything done scheduling stuff to be sent for 8 p.m. because they know that they're not going to be there um but yeah i think it's so it's so interesting that uh, you know whether you be a knowledge worker whether you be an entrepreneur or even somebody that has a more typical job that that does have bounded time slots for it we we set ourselves goals of of tasks to be done not time blocks to be worked in mm-hmm. and I, I mean i i do it as well i, I have tasks that this is what I'm going to do today, not this is how long I'm going to work on things to do today. And it, it's only right. ever going to lead in a society where you're, you're sort of encouraged. It's a meritocracy and you're encouraged to work harder. It's only ever going to lead to you overindulging in work. Right. And that's why, I mean, you, you can through, absolutely. Um, I've been there and not infrequently still go there, but it's, it's um, that's why I think practice with various different time blocking approaches and the the sort of fully featured Pomodoro technique does this too. When you sort of read the, or, you know, go beyond just the idea of 25 minute 
bursts of work. Um, it is a sort of training ground for getting better at estimating how long things are going to take you or of sort of putting in the inevitable extra hour, like accounting for one of your time blocked hours with all the things that I know I don't can't predict, but I know I'm going to end up having to, uh, that are going to overrun. Um, so you can get better, but yeah, I don't think it ever becomes perfect. I don't, I don't think it ever goes, the anxiety ever goes away if you're someone who's kind of in any way <laughs> trying to sort of do interesting things in the world. I mean, there may be exceptions to do with very, very scheduled and timetable based work, which can be, you know, very high status work as very, as well as low status work, you know, if it, if it really is strictly on a, on a, on a timetable, but even there, I feel like, you know, my go-to thought there is that like, surely this must be easier on teachers because of the way timetables work. But I know from every teacher I know that this is not true at all. Well, think about, so think about a personal trainer. By a long, long think time. about a personal trainer. Like you can't train somebody unless they're in front of you. Like you, right. you genuinely can't. But I know tons of personal trainers and because of access to social media, there's always, oh, I could, I could go searching for another client because I've got a, I've got a Friday 3 p.m. slot that needs filling. So and this is the right. this is the justification that we have around social media that it always yep. it always can present itself mm -hmm. as utility deriving work not work yep. work distracting time wasting yep plus that trainer probably wants to have a whole sort of content marketing arm to their operations right so there'll be limitless potential there to write blog posts um yeah no absolutely there's no real there's no real way around it i don't know lighthouse keepers Maybe they maybe it works for them to. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, perhaps. Just follow. <laughs> it, do it? Do, do are there even lighthouse keepers today? I don't know. But no, like, there's a very sure. limited number of jobs that are not subject to this um, this bleed into the whole of life. I think. Yeah. It's kind of like being an animal carer, but it's the internet that you're looking after. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is kind of sad. Well, think, think about the, the, yeah. think about it as well that because of the internet you are genuinely permitting any person that has a smartphone unless you've turned your notifications off and even if you have then when mm -hmm. you log on and you finally do check you're actually permitting whatever it is five billion people that have access to the internet every single one of them can make a thing happen that changes the course of your day there is yeah. no way that humans were psychologically designed to be able to imbibe the entire world's news in real time, 24 hours a day. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's a, it's a complete, the, you know, yeah. I always think about this in the context of like, in the context of like causes that we're supposed to care about, right. Um, the greatest saints in history, the most compassionate people who've ever lived with the who given the most of their time to other people were never asked to care about the number of instances of human suffering that like just jumping onto Twitter will expose you to. And in that case, you therefore need a kind of slightly almost callous seeming approach to be like, well, it's not that I'm not going to care about any of this, but I'm going to pick my pick my issues. And if I want to be an activist in some area or, or give money to some cause, it's going to like, yeah, and that phrase, um, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, which always seems like it's so anachronistic now. It's like, no, no, we're all paying attention to everything and permanently outraged about everything. Actually, <laughs> the only way to really efficiently care about something in your life, and I think this probably applies to everything in life, is is to 
is to be okay with not not caring about not caring about other things. Yeah. What's the danger of seeing leisure as an area for self improvement? Well, I think that's kind of like it's almost the it's the epitome of where all this ridiculousness is leading, right? That that like not only would you um, be kind of sort of on this productivity treadmill in a counterproductive fashion in your work, but that it then comes to colonize your, your, um, your, your time off. And, and this is this, you know, so that sometimes you get it, people talk about it literally as in this idea that you should use your time off to become a better worker. Um, but other times it's, it's just a, it's just subtler thing, right? It's this idea that like, you're not really using your leisure time well, unless you're training for some event or you're improving a, a skill or you're doing some like program of reading certain kinds of fiction to get through a certain list of them or whatever it might be. It, it actually, you know, this, this focus on the future, at the total expense of the present, it's a problem in all aspects of life, but it's, it's particularly obviously um, self-defeating when it's when it's leisure that we're talking about here because, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, it means fundamentally means that le- leisure becomes another kind of another kind of work, um, and uh, it actually gets really hard. I mean, this is my personal experience anyway. It, it's not that it's not that you don't get the opportunity to rest; it's that you do get the opportunity to rest, and then you kind of don't want to do it when. Uh, when the opportunity arises. Dig into that relationship between the present and the future for me. Well, this is instrumentalization, right? I mean, this is just the idea that on some level, we all have to treat time as something we're using now for a future uh, purpose or, or benefit. And that's not like, you can't, you can't give that up because then you sort of can't do anything. Um, I wouldn't have got this book written um, you wouldn't record these uh, podcasts if if you were only living for the value of the moment itself. You're, you're, we're always doing these things, but I think all sorts of um, pressures in the modern world and modern economy push us to completely overinvest in in that perspective, right? So you're you're constantly uh, valuing every moment in time exclusively for that future benefit. And the problem there is pretty obvious. Like you place all the value of anything you do at a time that's always in the future. You're never really fully present for life, which is another thing that there's a great Alan Watts quote about that I can't remember in detail right now. But so it's really sneaky because, of course, it feels very dutiful. It feels like you're being a good person and doing what you ought to be doing in life uh, when you're doing this. It doesn't feel like you're being a time waster or sort of addicted to social media or something. It feels like you're doing what you ought to be doing. And yet um, the result is, is that you're never present for your own life. Isn't there a quote, something to do with cats and, and kittens or something? Oh yeah. This is um, John Maynard Keynes talking about the the purposive man, uh, this idea of like the the person who lives entirely for, for the purposes that he's putting his time to, um, yeah, uh, no, doesn't doesn't really love his cat, but only the cat's kittens, and not really the cat's kittens, but really the kitten's kittens, and so on forward to the end of catdom. Um, yeah, I mean that that puts it that puts it very nicely, right? It's like it takes away from the present to invest everything that you care about in some future point because the future just uh, future just keeps on coming, and you never get there. 
one of my favorite Sam Harris quotes. I want to give this to you and uh, get your thoughts on it. As a matter of conscious experience, the reality of your life is always now. And I think that this is a liberating truth about the nature of the human mind. In fact, I think there's probably nothing more important to understand about your mind than that, if you want to be happy in this world. The past is a memory. It's a thought arising in the present. The future is merely anticipated. It is another thought arising now. What we truly have is this moment and this. And we spend most of our lives forgetting this truth, refuting it, fleeing it, overlooking it. And the horror is that we succeed. We manage to never really connect with the present moment and find fulfillment there because we are continually hoping to become happy in the future. And the future never arrives. Even when we think we're in the present moment, we're, in very subtle ways, always looking over its shoulder, anticipating what's coming next. We're always solving a problem. And it's possible to simply drop your problem, problem, if only for a moment, and enjoy whatever is true of your life in the present. That's great. Yeah, yeah. What do you want me to say? I mean, I, I agree completely. I think um, the part that really interests me is towards the end there, the, the sort of subtle ways in which uh, trying to be present in the moment is another example of not really appreciating that it's only always now. Um, again, because it implies that it might be possible to be separate from the moment and and therefore like to sort of succeed or fail at being present in it, which uh, which clearly makes no sense. I mean, I think the, the 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 sort of this is a very there's some aspects of this that like I have understood in the middle of a meditation retreat, but then you lose the moment you're trying to like you know actually live the rest of your life. The way the sort of narrow keyhole between those two domains that has always helped me is is to understand that, you know, anxious thoughts about what the future holds are also an example of something that you're experiencing in the moment. Um, plans that you have for your day that feel very, very important are, are also thoughts arising in the present moment. And it's not that, you know, it's a gross sort of, occasionally you get it, it's kind of crude, you encounter this sort of crude misinterpretation of these ideas that, that we should be stopping all such thinking and, and that you should only be feeling the physical sensations and perceptual input of being where you are, you know, actually, of course, making plans is really useful. And to a certain extent, anxiety can, can have a sort of motivating role if you keep it in check, but understanding or being able to step back again and remember that that is all unfolding now is, is very powerful. Now I won't pretend to have reached a level of, spiritual enlightenment maybe i don't know if sam harris would where i can sort of get the most value out of those thoughts while in that same exact moment knowing that they are nothing but thoughts arising in the moment like i think when i get lost in thought because i'm writing something and i want it to be good like i am living in the i am not living fully in the moment in those those times or maybe i am maybe that's flow but Maybe that's a bad example, but you know what I mean? It's like that when I'm planning my day, cause I need it to go a certain way. It's useful to step back and remember that this is just a plan in the present. I'm not sure I'm really thinking that in the very moment of planning that, that seems like it would require a power of presence that I'm maybe still working towards. <laughs> There's a quote in the book that says what we forget is a plan is just a thought, right? 
Right. That's jo uh, Joseph Goldstein, um, the meditation teacher. And I think it's it's such a great if you, if you get it. I'm not sure one automatically gets it from the how do you get the it? words, but I'm sure you. Sorry. How do you get it? What do you say? How do you? Well, get I'm, it? I don't know. I do, and I think you do. So I'm just saying, like, if, if this if this quote lands in somebody's mind who's listening, and they don't, say, oh, what's the fuss about there? It's it's a little hard to to say, I think. But but to me, that is just like I think we sort of naturally think of plans as kind of um, hooks we're trying to throw over the future to bring it under our control. And that quote, for me anyway, serves as a reminder that a plan is just like any other thought that you're having in the present moment, like the thought that you're hungry or the thought that you wish you hadn't said that embarrassing thing to that person. Um, the thought that your intention for your day is that it unfold in a certain way is similarly just a present moment statement of intent. And I think it can be useful and it can be great to write it down so that you can refer to it when you face decision points in the day. But if you think it's more than that, if you think that it's going to somehow uh, lever you into a position over time such that you're in control uh, and time isn't, um, then you're just going to be constantly running up against reality in a, in a, in a painful and stress-inducing way. Yeah, I think that the challenge that people have uh, that comes right back to what you said at the beginning is that there is a denial of death here, that there is mm -hmm. a, a fear of being a finite creature surrounded by infinite complexity, and that the more that I can wrangle that chaos into order through plans, through a productivity system, maybe, just maybe, I can get more life in, or maybe I can protect myself from the chaos that's occurring around me. And if that right. is the case, right. then maybe I can almost transcend death. I do think it's very much a rehabilitated eternalistic thinking you know yeah yep. far fewer people now are believing that we're going to rise up to heaven or fall down to hell so how can i assuage this denial of death like you know would ernest becker be a productivity guru in 2021 <laughs> yeah it's a it's a it's a quest for exemption somehow isn't it from from the situation that we're all that we're all in and you know i yeah absolutely i'm it's it's um I feel it in myself, right? I mean, uh, I don't need to go into the details here, but right now I'm wrangling some situation involving an application for a passport. And um, it's, it's extremely intoxicating, that notion that if, that if certain things could just be confirmed and fixed and known, then it wouldn't just be that this one particular issue could be disregarded. It would be that one had reached, uh, 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 one was back in a situation of sort of, not being vulnerable to unfolding events. It's the and level course, of the you know, you, computer game where you right. no longer have any problems. Right. But of course, if I sorted out this burdensome passport thing and stepped out into the street, there is no guarantee that a grand piano won't fall on my head from a <laughs> from an apartment higher up, right? I mean, and, and that's obviously a little bit absurd, but but something else could happen and indeed something else will happen. So, What yeah. are some good questions that people can ask themselves to help refine their direction for this? Well, I love and always talk about uh, this question that comes from James Hollis, the, the Jungian uh, analyst and writer, which is to ask of every big life question that, that you're, approach, that you're um, encountering, whether it will enlarge you or diminish you. Um, it can sound a bit kooky at first, but 
this is as an alternative to like, will this job make me happy? Will this relationship make me happy? Would I be happier if I left this relationship or did, did this other thing? This question of enlargement and diminishment seems to connect something intuitive that I think most people already know about the path that they're on. They know whether they know whether the, the, the stresses and difficulties that they encounter in, say, a relationship are the kind of stresses and difficulties that are making them a bigger person and are worth sticking with for the payoff uh, and are sort of part of growth. Or whether they're the kind that sort of make your soul shrivel up and it's clear that like you two are just completely incompatible and should go your separate ways. And I think that applies to all sorts of other domains as well. So that, I think, is one of the questions that I uh, like to bang on about. Um, Another one just to mention is this whole idea that I think we put off doing a lot of um, worthwhile and important things uh, pending some time when we're going to feel sort of fully qualified to do them. And I think even people who aren't um, uh, burdened by imposter syndrome in that sort of direct sense of thinking that they are a fraud, there's still very, very easy, I think, especially in younger adulthood, to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to launch this project now or do this thing now because clearly what I'm going to do is I'm going to, in five years' time, I'm going to really know what I'm doing. And in the sense in which that is meant, I don't think anyone ever knows what they're doing and they're all completely winging it all the time. And the only reason you don't hear there in the monologues of self-doubt is because you're not inside their heads. Um, and it differs, you know, some people probably are too bold in launching things that they should, that they should do more preparation for. But I think the overwhelming bias that we have is towards holding back uh, pending the time when we feel like we know what we're doing and it might be worth uh, contemplating the possibility that nobody ever knows. Nobody ever feels like they know what they're doing. I've got some buddies who have risen up through the ranks of financial institutions and they were talking about this sort of red pilling of their imposter syndrome because they presumed mm-hmm. that, you know, when you get into the real big boardrooms, you know, when you're on the the 35th floor, and it's floor to ceiling glass and everybody in there's on mm-hmm. a million a year that right, finally then, finally right, people yes. will know what they're doing and they came out and they said it's literally morons all the way up <laughs> yeah yeah well i guess that's the yeah that's the disdainful way to put it the other way to think about it is of course that we're all morons in some in some important sense which means like yeah you have as much chance of pulling off whatever you're trying to pull off as as anybody else, yeah. And obviously the seriousness of your book's title, 4,000 Weeks, the reason for that is that that's the length of time of somebody that lives-ish, lives for 80 years. And there's a quote that you open the book with from Douglas Harding. It's the very last thing, isn't it? We feel grateful for having happened. You know, you needn't have happened. You needn't have happened, but you did happen. And the infinitesimal, tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a chance that you are alive for this moment, for these 4,000 weeks, that is reason to place a very, very high value on your time to ensure that the things that you are doing genuinely do matter to you, not just now, but that you're going to look back in 10 years, 50 years time and say, that is how I wanted to spend my time. 
that's the degree of perspective that we that we should be taking care of the moment it is <clears throat> it is the only thing i want to say to sort of develop that is i wouldn't want people to go away from this with the idea that what that means is this kind of white knuckle attempt to seize the day in a kind of stressful like got to pack every day with the most amazing experiences I can find and like spend every weekend base jumping, whatever, you know, I, it's not, it's almost like, I, I hope that it, I hope that I can get this perspective where yes, the stakes are incredibly high because the chances of you being born were infinitesimal. The amount of time you have is not at all long, but there's also something very, I think, relaxing and liberating and empowering about seeing that, you know, precisely because that is the situation, um, the attempt to sort of outrun these limitations uh, and and do more than any human could do and live longer than any human could live, like you get to drop that because you already got the gift, which is like some time on the planet. So one way I want to phrase it maybe is not like you must do things with your life that matter to you, but that like you might as well do spend your time doing things that matter to you. Like what have you got to lose uh, compared to someone who never got to be born? So there's something about this that I hope that I find relaxing and I hope other people do as well. Not, not numbing, not, not like, so spend the rest of your life on a hammock on a beach, but but relaxing in the sense that the pressure is off and it's because the pressure is off that you might as well spend your life doing things that really, really matter to you. Oliver Berkman, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to check out more of your stuff, where should they go? Uh, well, the book, uh, 4,000 Weeks, uh, that's uh, there. They can go to uh, 4,000weeksbook.com, 4000weeksbook.com, which is really just a page on my website, which is oliverberkman.com. I love it. Cheers, Oliver. Thank you very, very much.